Welcome to Agape Ministries Podcasts, a whole new way of thinking. Episode 182, part one of a talk given by Father Ronald Rollhauser entitled, How to Hear the Voice of God. Your, 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 your topic or your theme, which I very much like, clear voices, clear voices. And I want to do st- three things with you this morning. One of them, I'd just briefly, one of them, I just want to name and then something at length to do with voices. I've called this, this uh, presentation, Clear Voices Struggling or Searching for the Tone and the Cadence of the Voice of the Good Shepherd. Struggling to hear a clear voice. So you're going to see we, there's many, many voices. We're just surrounded with all kinds of voices. Some of them are pretty clear, but they may be false voices. So what I want to do with this morning's presentation is, is talk about how do we, among all these voices, do we discern the voice of the Good Shepherd? What's the cadence? What's the tone among all those voices? And I want to do three things. The first one, first two really briefly. I want to talk a little bit about my own, and I usually don't begin talks this way, my own personal experience of struggling to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. Not because my, my life, as you'll see, is in, in any way exceptional, but because I think it's very, very typical of everybody searching for God's voice. And then I just want to very, very briefly name um, some of the voices, ten voices that pretend they're God's voice but are not God's voice. But with most of the talk, what I want to do is to talk about how do you discern God's voice? What are the principles of discernment? Okay, and I have a bit of a gathering hymn here, just a little little poem to, to set the stage. This is Kabir, who was a Sufi mystic poet, wonderful poet. And this is a poem called The Time Before Death. The Time Before Death. He says, friend... Hope for the quest while you are alive. Jump into experience while you are alive. Think and think while you are alive. What you call salvation belongs to the time before death. If you don't break the ropes while you are alive, do you think that ghosts will do this for you afterwards? The idea that the soul will join with the ecstatic Just because the body is dead, all of that is a fantasy. What is found now is found then. If you find nothing now, after death, you'll simply end up with an apartment in the city of the dead. It's quite a line. If you find nothing now, after death, you'll simply end up with an apartment in the city of the dead. But if you make love with the divine now, in the next life, you will have the face of satisfied desire. So plunge into the truth. Find out who the teacher is and believe in the great sound. When the guest is being searched for, it's the intensity of the longing that does all the work. Okay, voices. How do we discern God's voice among all the voices around us? And as you know, we're just surrounded by voices. Henri Nouwen used to have this image. He'd start in his writings. Imagine you're driving down a highway 
or I don't know what you call them in, in England. We call them highways or beltways or freeways. And you just see these hundreds of billboards and everything is inviting you. Drink this, eat this, buy this, travel to this place. This will bring you life. And we have all these TV channels and today thousands and millions really of internet sites. And everybody is speaking some truth, promising some life. Um, where inside of all these voices is God's voice? Well, I want to start with a little personal note. And like I said, not because I think my life is atypical, because I think it's pretty typical. I mean, I'm a pretty unexciting person, okay? Um, now, for me, this has been my journey. As a little boy, I grew up in a very Catholic house, very Christian house, um, Drew a long straw, very, I had a very good mother, very good father, good family life, healthy parish. And for a little, as a little kid then, the voice of God is really clear. It was my mother and dad's voice um, who taught me about God and, and had clear things. This is right. This is wrong. Be careful about this. You're going to hear this on the street. You're going to hear this on the radio. You're going to hear this on television. But that won't be right. So it was my parents' voice. You know, this, this is right. This is wrong. This is God's voice. And it was very clear. And by and large, that was reinforced in the parish, in my catechism classes. And by and large, even, even in our schools, I ended up going to a public school because we didn't have Catholic schools in my area. But the public schools themselves uh, very much, by and large, reinforced that. Those of you who remember going to school in the 50s, some of you, <laughs> uh, but you know, it was all about respect. The teacher came in, you stood up, said, good morning, missus, good morning, sir, and so on. And you had to measure up, and there were very clear rules. This is right, this is wrong. You're a patriotic citizen, God, country, decency. So that was, the, that was all reinforced. There was only one place of dissidence, and that was oftentimes the playground. On the playground, you met kids... <laughs> and ideas and language that didn't fit your parents and the church and everything else. But then, of course, it was easy to say, well, these are bad kids. You know, they're coming from bad homes. They swear and do stuff, and they're just trying to sell drugs or whatever they're doing, but that's clearly not God's voice. So God's voice was clear. Then at age 18, I went to the Oblate Seminary, and everything there reinforced my parents' voice. So you go there, and first of all, in those days, seminaries were very isolated. So I'm there, uh, you're isolated, you're, you're, um, you're pulled out of the world for the first year or two. We weren't allowed radios or newspapers. Uh, you're studying the lives of saints. You're studying scripture. Um, and also the rules in those days were, were very, very clear. And so everything from, from uh, my parents and everything I grew up was reinforced. So there weren't any real struggles. When I was a 19, 20, and 21-year-old seminarian, I was pretty clear how God was speaking, you know. And at times, even when I go home for a home visit, you know, when you're young and you're in little adolescent grandiosity spiritually, you know, I was trying to even straighten my parents out because of their laxity, you know, and, uh, you know, how that is, you know. So, so the voice of God is really clear. Now, it's interesting. We started studying philosophy and, you know, we were exposed to thinkers like Freud and Nietzsche and so on and some of the great philosophers who had a different kind of a voice. 
But in the seminary, in the early seminary, was we're going to study these people to show where they're wrong. <laughs> so we, we studied all these great thinkers, and immediately our professor would say, and here's where they're wrong. And so the voice of God stayed very, very clear. And it stayed like that till graduate school and my early years of ministry. So I enter graduate school, and we begin to read. We were reading them in, in literature in my first years, but we began to you have a more critical mind. And we began to, I was reading novelists and philosophers and thinkers and psychologists. And it was beginning to stir and ask a lot of other deeper questions inside of myself. And so I began to read Nietzsche and actually understand Nietzsche or Feuerbach or some of the great novelists, the Czechoslovakian, Kundra. Uh, remember the, the unbearable lightness of being, immortality, some of these novels. Some of your British novelists, A.S. Byatt. Iris Murdoch, Anita Bruckner, and, and it began to, uh, or Graham Greene, good Roman Catholic, but wrote some of the most morally challenging novels you'll read, where suddenly you realize it's not so clear, right and wrong, and where is God, and where, who's good and who's bad, suddenly becomes a lot more vague, and starts to begin to, um, I begin to ask questions about myself, and even my parents, you know, like, um, were we like really a hundred percent right and so on. And then also in graduate schools, I was in graduate schools in the seventies, early eighties, you know, um, if you're in graduate schools of anything, um, they tend to be, well, first of all, critical academically in a good sense, but they tend to be pretty iconoclastic. So there are no sacred cows and there isn't a lot of piety in graduate schools. And um, I began to stretch my mind. Just a couple of examples. You know, when I was in the seminary, and for instance, we, 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 we studied Terre de Chardin, but with very cautionary flags. The professor would say, we're going to read Terre de Chardin. But, but, you know, he was silenced by the church, and you had to be really careful. You're really careful. This is edgy stuff. I went to a graduate class in Berkeley, California, in process theology, and the professor came in the first day, and he says, well, he said, well, we're not going to be studying Teilhard in this class. You probably think, well, I said, we're going to study Whitehead. We're going to study Hartshorn. He says, the reason we're not going to study Teilhard, he says, Teilhard was a Thomist. He said, and that's an incurable disease. He said, if you get that, he said, it scars you for life. He said, that's why he was so horribly conservative. <laughs> okay. We have been taught careful with this liberal thinker and this, this great philosopher says, he was just horribly conservative, you know, uh, a Catholic catechetical thinker. Okay. Uh, and on and on. But it was also stretched very, very much by my early years of ministry. Um, See, in, in the seminary we were taught, and there were rights and wrongs, and everything was clear and unambiguous. And I remember doing my first marriage annulment. And a uh, woman came, you know, to see me as a priest, you know, could I work on her marriage annulment? And we had been taught in the seminary by a very good priest who later became a bishop, and then an archbishop, you know, like, careful, careful, people come and they want their marriage annulled because they don't want to stay in, they don't want to pay the price of sacrifice and have all this going on in my head. That's my parents' voice. And um, this woman came in, and actually this professor, he had, he had taught us to ask the right questions. He says, um, people come in, he said, don't ever ask them, why is it difficult to stay in this marriage? That all marriages are difficult. He said, ask them, why is it impossible? That's the words. got to be impossible. <laughs> okay. 
Good advice. So the first thing I said to this young woman, I said, why is it impossible for you to stay in your marriage? She laughed and said, because if we stay any longer, I'll either kill him or he'll kill me. <laughs> I said, okay, that's, that's pretty clear. <laughs> and, and you begin to see that the, the ambiguity of life, the way Graham Greene describes in the heart of the matter, and at the end of the affair and all these places, you know, just the ambiguity, the moral complexity of life and so on, um, it began to make serious questions inside of me, not about the fundamentals. So now I'm a graduate uh, student, I'm a priest, I've got a doctorate, so on, I'm reading all these novelists. The voice of my parents and of my catechism, of the seminary, it's still the essential voice. It's still the voice that grounds me. It's still where I hear God, loud and clear, clear voice, okay? But with a lot of, not a lot, some major qualifications. So I recognize God's voice in the voice that came to me when I was young, okay? But now I recognize inside of that voice, too, there was a lot of an, an all-fairness to that because nobody's above their age. There was a lot of racism. There was a lot of sexism. There was a lot of just Christian or other neuroses about enjoyment, about guilt. There was a sexual uptightness. Not that today's culture is healthy about sexuality at all, but a, a powerful sexual uptightness, you know, which we see, for instance, in, in so much of our, of our Christian literature. Uh, for instance, it's impossible for us as Christians right now to, for instance, attribute sexual complexity to Jesus, to Mary, to Mother Teresa, uh, to any celibate, or just to sanctity in general. For example, who gets canonized in the Roman Catholic Church, by and large? Celibates, which rules most of you out. Okay, okay. You know, in fact, I think John Paul uh, that trumped it when he canonized his married couple because they weren't having sex. You know, they were an heroic couple, heroic couple who didn't have sex. See, there's a wonderful God's voices in all of this, but you begin to see, but it's not that clear. Um, there, there's a, an unhealthy defenseness to, uh, defensiveness towards other religions and towards otherness in general, and a too simplistic thing about culture, about um, there's an, oftentimes an anti-intellectual bias towards the arts, and that's why artists have always struggled with religion. Well, they struggle with religion for other reasons, but artists and intellectuals, notice, have always struggled with religion. Partly it's their issue, partly it's also our issue. And just an overall fear of so many things. I was struck recently, you know, the old singer Leonard Cohen, who is a genius, but he's like in 77 now. He recently did a concert, and he said, you know, he said, I tried religion and philosophy. He said, but happiness kept breaking through. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And so I think many of us have, have a similar, you know, voice in our past about, you know, God's voice. It is clear. God's voice is clear in the catechesis, in the upbringing, in, you know, the, the homiletics and stuff of our youth. That's why we're sitting in this room. But all of us are sitting in this room, and, and we've heard God's voice, and we've heard it clearly, but maybe we haven't heard all the clear nuances. And 
the challenges and the wideness and so on, and that our Catholicity, and I don't mean that in terms of Roman Catholicity, just our Catholicity oftentimes is narrow, um, maybe a little bit too narrow to be in heaven where we've got to sit down at a table with everybody. Buddhists and Hindus and people who are different and uh, wide enough. I want to read you one passage, and I want to go on to discerning God's voice. I remember reading that as a, um, I was in graduate school. It's an American novelist called Mary Gordon, who's actually a, quite a committed Roman Catholic, <clears throat> but a very powerful uh, novelist and artist. And in her very first novel, which is a book called Final Payments, which I don't know how biographical or autobiographical it is, but she traces just the interior moral struggle of a young woman in New York City. A Roman Catholic, strong Roman Catholic father who was a philosopher, a classical Roman Catholic thinker teaching this, and her mother who's um, not quite as strong, but pretty strong, and then having the, an aunt live with her, an Irish aunt, who is, you know, one of these, it's just um, very, very strong Catholic. And the mother disappears, and the aunt kind of takes over, and the young girl is kind of haunted by the aunt. And uh, one day she has this huge fight, this argument with her aunt. And she rushes out of the room, and she slams the door. Her aunt's name is Margaret, and she's going up the stairs, and this is her passage. She says, one of the marvels of a Catholic education is that the impulses of, few, of a few words can bring whole narratives to light with an immediacy and a clarity that are utterly absorbing. The poor you always have with you. I knew where Jesus had said that, at the house of Martha and Mary. Mary had, had opened up a jar of ointment over Christ's feet, spikenard ointment, I remembered, expensive ointment, and she wiped his feet with her hair, Judas had rebuked her. He had said that the ointment ought to be sold and given the money given to the poor. But John had noted that Judas had said this only because he kept the purse and he was a thief. And Christ had said to Judas, Mary at his feet, her hair, her hair spread out around him, the poor you'll always have with you, but me you won't always have. Until that moment, Climbing the dark stairs in rage to my ugly room, it was a passage I had never understood. It seemed to me to justify the excesses of centuries of fat, tyrannical bankers. But now I understood what Christ was saying, what he meant. What he meant was that the pleasures of that hair, that ointment, must be taken because the accidents of death would soon enough deprive us. We must not deprive ourselves, our loved ones, of the luxury of extravagant affection. We must not try to, guess, to second guess death by refusing to love the ones we love in favor of the anonymous poor. It came to me, fumbling in the hallway for the light, that I had been a thief, like Judas. I had wanted to hide gold, to count it in the dead of the night, and to parley it into some safe and murderous investment. It was Margaret's poverty that I was trying to steal, the safety of her inability to inspire love, so that never again would I be found weeping like Mary at the tombstone at the break of dawn. It was Margaret's poverty I was trying to steal in the name of religion. If you take about 90% of the deeper criticisms that have been made of 
religion and of Christianity and maybe Roman Catholicism in particular by better thinkers, from Nietzsche through Freud, through whoever, through some of the great novelists, they'll come down to what she just said. That in, it's not that we're wrong, she said, but we're getting it wrong. That, um, and we're getting Jesus wrong. That um, there, there's something, we're, we're making ourselves uptight and we're depriving God's great um, gift to us of that very giftedness by trying to steal poverty in the name of religion. Um, see, and it's, it's that kind of part of God's voice that isn't so clear for us. Okay. Um, that's just the first part. That, that's been my own struggle. I'm standing here with you this morning, so obviously I'm still a priest. <laughs> I'm still committed. I still am hearing God's voice clearly and so on. Uh, but I'm hearing it with a lot, lot more nuance now than I ever did when I was a kid taking catechism. Although, don't get me wrong, one of the, the marvels and powers of a truly strong, conservative religious upbringing is that it gives you powerful roots. I remember listening to Richard Rohr recently, and Richard Rohr said, you know, he said, I grew up rural, farm boy, he said, Catholic community, and he says, strongly conservative. He said, my God, he said, my parents even voted Republican. <laughs> he says, and he says, uh, strong conservative roots. He said, you know something? It's the greatest gift you can have. He said, now I'm free for the rest of my life. See, you notice what he's saying? I was given strong conservative roots. Now I'm free for the rest of my life. I work with a lot of young seminarians today, good-hearted young men who were never given any strong roots at all, and many of them are going to be struggling for the rest of their lives to root themselves, you know, to, to really hear the clarity of God's voice and stuff, because they were never given these strong roots. And they'd be afraid to read the novels of A.S. Bayat. They, they're afraid to read Nietzsche and Feuerbach and so on. No, no, keep that away from me, you know, because um, it's a wind that, that, that's too strong. Okay. So if you grew up the way I did, um, it's a wonderful upbringing. Um, it's God's voice, but like all experiences in life, it's not God's voice it's in, in, in its purity, in its, its pure clarity. So thank you for taking the time to listen to these episodes. Our prayer is that as you listen and reflect on these teachings, that you'll be encouraged to continue your journey to maximize your potential to have a good and a happy life. So sign in again next week for more teaching on how you can follow the Jesus way to experience your life is filled with meaning, purpose and joy. So God bless and stay safe.